0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my lovely co host, Kate Wolf, LARB's editor at large. Hi,
1: Kate. Hi, Eric.
0: Today we're speaking with Julia Sissa about her new book, Jealousy, a Forbidden Passion. We'll be joined in that interview by our other co host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor at LARB, though she's not unfortunately in the studio with us today. Kate. When was the time that you remember feeling particularly jealous?
1: Oh. Well, something I really liked about this book was that it makes a divide between envy and jealousy. A romantic form of jealousy mm. and just an everyday envy. And I think that I suffer from envy probably almost every day. But I haven't been romantically jealous in a long time.
0: That's maybe... a good thing. But it is, especially but... based on this book, it's a good thing.
1: It is, but then I also... Based on this book it makes me realize I kind of take my love for granted.
0: Mm, I'm a, mm. I'm in a happy
1: relationship and so I don't <laughs> often think about love.
0: Well, but, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking too, the same I had exactly the same realization that it's like I used to describe the first 5 years of my relationship with my partner Dan as being entirely structured by jealousy. And that that was the fuel that bound us together. But it was, in fact, actually envy because it was about like, oh, he had the more clever joke or, oh, he did this better or he did that better. "Mm, He had a better reference than I did or career competition. But you're right. That's envy. That's not jealousy.
1: Right. Or that's maybe that's why you. Fell in love with him because he was better well, at all these things.
0: Absolutely than you. fell in love with him because of competition. <laughs> I mean, both of us are insanely competitive uh, with one another in almost every aspect of our lives, that's um, which does keep it interesting. But then I was thinking too that it's like you know, oftentimes. We don't get jealous because a thing that we'll often do when we're just out and about is kind of look at other guys mm-hmm. and then recognizing that we both find the same guy attractive will actually be a point of like mutually affirmed aesthetic cohesion, right? That it's like, oh, you you do like the same thing that I like. Um, right. But then when we differ, that actually becomes a point of friction where it's like, what? Are you sure? Are you looking at the same person that I'm looking at? But again... A great lesson from this book is that jealousy is not the same as envy.
1: Yes, yes, and I thought this book was very elucidating on on many points, uh, and it made me feel that perhaps I should become more jealous. Yeah. Of my of my partner, so I, I'll, I'll be working on that this Absolutely. week. Absolutely,
0: and that jealousy might, in fact, the feeling of jealousy might be the affirmation of the fact that you are in love with that exactly. person. Exactly, we should be careful to say it's not the only way to know that you're in love with someone, but it is definitely a way of marking that love. All right, so let's get to that interview with Julia Sissa about her new book, Jealousy. Yes. We're joined in the studio today by Julia Sisa, author of Jealousy, a Forbidden Passion, a philosophical inquiry into our relationship with an emotion that is equal parts aesthetic affect and fundamentally human demand for the other's love. Sisa is a distinguished professor of political science and classics at the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Julia.
2: Thank you for having me. Let's start out with just saying,
0: so this is a book about jealousy. What is Jealousy. And how is it distinct, say, from envy, which is another emotion that we often confuse it with?
2: Thank you very much for this question to start with, because the first gesture for me in this book, the first argument is precisely to separate amorous jealousy from envy. And here, Aristotle, I mean, you know, the Greeks, the ancients are always with me, with us in this book. Aristotle helps us defining precisely envy as a negative passion. When mm. I'm envious, I don't like, I feel displeasure because someone else has goods that can be material but also symbolic, imaginary, moral, aesthetic goods. I don't like for that person to be endowed with all those goods and I would like to deprive that person of those goods. So envy is a negative emotion in the sense that I would like precisely for that person to not to have what they have. And on the contrary, amorous jealousy, and here again the ancients are incredibly inspiring, amorous jealousy is something completely different, a completely different experience, both emotionally, physically, and I would say morally. Why? Because what we call amorous jealousy is actually a form of Profound disappointment. It is what with, again, the ancients, but then we will talk about other historical scenarios, what with the ancients we could talk erotic anger. In other words, we have to disconnect as radically as we can possibly do, disconnect amorous jealousy on the one hand and envy on the other. Why? Because jealousy, amorous jealousy, is love, is intrinsic to the experience of love, and even to the experience of erotic desire. Why do I say so? Let me just stop
3: you there. How did you get to the understanding? You just asked that question yourself, but how did you get to an understanding between the inextricability of amorous jealousy, what you call that, and love.
2: What is the connection between them? The connection is what I think is a good definition of love. And this good definition of love is that what we desire when we are attracted to someone is that person's own desire for us. So love, desire is desire for the other person's desire. And even if it is ephemeral, even if it is an affair, even if it is a brief encounter, what is intrinsic to that desire for the other person's desire is the aspiration, the tension toward two things, singularity and reciprocity. And I think that really desire for the other person's desire in a dimension of both singularity and reciprocity is what best captures our experience of love if we are honest about it. You write
1: that in antiquity, jealousy was seen as a catalyst, that it could begin things that Helen you know started the war because of her beauty and jealousy of her I'm not sure what story I'm talking about but you know what I'm (laughs) saying yeah Yeah. Uh, thank you we have a classicist here she should (laughs) be filling in but anyways so in fiction or in drama jealousy is obviously important as a catalyst but how in in our lives, do you think it has a redeeming value of affirming desire, starting things? I mean, tell us some more positive attributes that are usually overlooked with jealousy.
2: With pleasure. Let me just add a footnote. <laughs> a catalyst and a very powerful narrative and fictional and engine. I don't know, how many operas do you know in which jealousy doesn't play a role? How many novels do you know in which jealousy? it doesn't play a role. And, you know, the Iliad, to start with the beginning, is precisely a story where uh, rivalry and amorous rivalry plays the dynamic, you know, role in conducting the action. How about us? we are on board, we are all in in this kind of comparable situations and if we go back to this, if we go back and we accept this very humbling definition of desire and love to the effect that desire is the desire for the other person's desire for us, what are the immediate consequences? Everything starts from there. What are the immediate consequences of this premise? Well, it is that we are at the mercy of the other person's desire. It is that we are always a bit apprehensive about the other person's desire. Not because we would be insecure, but because just that desire implies the mobility, the freedom, the wings in the representation of love Mm -hmm. in uh, ancient poetry and in paintings, the wings of precisely eros. So it's absolutely normal, as Freud would say, to be anxious about the simple fact that the other person's desire Mm. is free. But if we accept that, then we can also realize that jealousy is erotic. Mm -hmm. If jealousy is erotic because Eros is always attentive to the other person's potential, flying away simply because Mm. desire is free for the same reasons we can realize that precisely the potential for the other person's mobility is a reason for our own desiring even more Mm -hmm. so Mm. desire is mimetic the more a person is desirable for others The more we are attentive to those little characteristics, those little diamonds that somehow scintillate in the beloved, on the beloved. And therefore, our own desire can be re-inflamed, so to speak, to use a very old metaphor.
0: Wait, then are you saying that we can't actually love without jealousy? The jealousy would be a fundamental part of being in love at some point, maybe not all the time, but at some point it's a fundamental characteristic of that relation.
2: I do. I do, and I'm not alone. I'm not alone (laughs) alone in in thinking about love in these terms, because Um. take, I don't know, Thomas Aquinas, there is in love a tension and intention, intentionality, a tension, all these words resonate with each other, tension towards what? Towards the response of the other person. Mm -hmm. And this is why in the book I insist so much about the fact that we should get rid of the language of objectification, possession and possessiveness, which is intimidating in a sense, creates Mm -hmm. as almost an ideological intimidation about jealousy. Love is not about possession and objectification, precisely because I tend towards the response, the subjective free reciprocal response of the other person vis-a-vis me and therefore I would like to be loved or as Sartre says, wonderful, wonderful, Mm. you know, formula love is the project of being loved. So I am automatically in a position of passivity. I would like to be loved reciprocally and in a singular way, and therefore I'm exposed, and therefore I'm vulnerable. This book is about accepting humbly the vulnerability of being in love.
1: And I think that, you know, there's a, Medea is someone you write about in the book, and that is a bad, perhaps a the most extreme example of what happens when someone is not loved the way they would like to be. But I I think it's interesting that you write of her jealousy as being a noble jealousy, or you write of her as being noble. So maybe you could explain that a little for us and just talk about Medea as this extreme case.
2: Yes, thank you. I know... It's dangerous to <laughs> to make that argument because Medea is such a terrifying, tremendous, in the double sense of the word, uh, character. She's tremendous, she's formidable, and she yes, is so uh, frightening. She has been for centuries frightening and formidable at the same time. She has fascinated poets and playwrights. So we have, you know, so many versions of Medea. Why? Precisely because starting with Euripides' play, what we see is on the one hand, a staging of the passion, a staging of the emotion, of the experience of this amorous disappointment as erotic anger. And what we see is something that I care very much about because I've seen this idea emerge, is that actually when we think about jealousy, we usually obsess about the triangle, the third party, Mm -hmm. and our relationship with the third party, the rival. But... What Euripides shows is that what matters happens within the couple, Mm -hmm. happens precisely as a breaking up and a breaking down of what? Of that desire of being desired, Mm. of being loved in a singular manner and in perfect reciprocity or desirable reciprocity. And this is anger. This is precisely what the ancients define as anger. Now, anger is the perception of an undue, undeserved misrecognition, offense, uh, disappointment, and this is the sort of collapsing part of the emotion. But then the other part of the emotion is actually desire to take revenge. Now, and here is the acting out in in the particular case of Medea through the murder. Now, the play is built masterfully in such a way that we see that as long as Medea expresses her experience of the sort of collapse of her couple of these arrows was everything for her and this man is, you know, the total bastard who <laughs> misrecognizes her, doesn't even give her credit for her love. And so as long as Medea expresses that emotion, everyone in the play sympathizes with her, empathizes with her, they support her, they say, you are right. When she acts out, in the sort of revenge moment of the passion of anger and she chooses the children as targets then everyone turns against her because at that point it's impossible to agree and even to understand her for all sorts of reasons
0: i keep getting hung up on this do you think that that is because It's the children?
2: Your question is actually very interesting and and really gives us the sense of the sophistication of the play because Medea... When she learns that Jason is going to marry the princess of Corinth and uh, on top of that, take the children he had with Medea and somehow have them adopted in the new house and she will have to leave the city. Well, the first reaction of Medea is to want to take revenge against Jason and his new house. Mm -hmm. This is plan Mm -hmm. A. Okay. But then she goes for Plan B. And the difference from Plan A and Plan B is that in the meantime, she had a final clash with Jason in which Jason tells her, oh, you speak all the time about your errors, your love, 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 love. Actually." You didn't do what you say that you did for me out of love. It is Aphrodite. It is the goddess of love who made you do what you did. In other words, you don't exist as a subject of eros, as a subject of love. Your entire life that you present as a life of passion for me a commitment to me is just a sort of automatic effect of the God's action on you so this is an absolute annihilating misrecognition I do not recognize you as you as a subject of love and Jason adds you think that it's all about sex and love you women you women are obsessed with that Actually, I do it for the children, because you're a foreigner, you're a barbarian, and mm. my children will be much better off in a new house if I marry the princess of the city. Mm. And at that point, media changes her mind and goes for plan B, plan B being killing the children. The children is what you care about, Jason. Here they are. Right. Here mm. is the corpses. And that's beyond the pale.
0: Right, okay. right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're listening to Larb Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Julia Sissa, author of Jealousy: A Forbidden Passion. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. For this week's book recommendation, Kate Wolf, our editor at large at Larb and co-host on this show, has joined us in the studio. What book are you recommending this week, Kate?
1: I would like to recommend a book called Sam the Cat by Matthew Clam. Hmm. It's a book of short stories. And Matthew Clam has a new novel out that I've yet to read called Who is Rich? That's getting a lot of good reviews. But because of all those reviews, I finally read Sam the Cat, which I believe came out almost 20 years ago. Oh, okay. And it's interesting to read this book now in light of everything that's happening with Me Too and thinking about misogyny. All the stories are narrated by a man who speaks about women in <laughs> sometimes challenging ways. As a woman reader to encounter, okay. just talks about their bodies and their sex appeal and
0: in like objectifying ways. Oh I'm yeah. Assuming. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: And usually the plots, you know, center around someone being a bit of a cad or strange sexual encounters. And yet, often the narrator will veer in a direction you wouldn't expect, and suddenly. Mm you aren't quite as sure that the person who's telling the story is as as much of a strange, bad guy as they initially seemed.
0: So it's like recuperating the cad, you mean? Mm, not
1: quite. They're okay. just so, I think that maybe I appreciated it especially in light of everything i've been reading in the news mm. in terms of this a nuance of sexual perversion or you know sexual obsession mm. that oftentimes someone might have thoughts that that don't even play out in their actions they might be thinking They might have baggage of patriarchy on their mind constantly, Mm. but then it might kind of, something might subsume it and it might level out. Just because the narration would lead you always to believe that something kind of nefarious is going to happen, but then often it doesn't. And then... Oh, okay. And that's why the stories are kind of truly brilliant because they build and then they level. And it's surprising the twists and turns they take it actually reminded me a lot of another collection of stories I love that came out a few years ago called A Manual for Cleaning Women Mm. by Lucia Berlin, in that those stories as well are just so unexpected and will veer off in so many completely unforeseen directions that you're always surprised. And these stories by Matthew Clam are similar.
0: That sounds great. I'm always excited when people recommend short story collections, both because I think that's a form that gets like not enough critical attention or kind of public attention also. And they're just great, especially for times when you really only have a moment to read a story and you can't get invested in an entire novel. Can you give us the title and author just one more time?
1: The title is Sam the Cat. It's a collection of stories by Matthew Clam. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Julia Sissa, author of Jealousy, A Forbidden Passion.
3: In some ways, it also seems like a way of... Because something that I was thinking about while reading this was, what are the other ways in which Medea exists, right? If she exists as a subject of Eros, or not... Right. If negating that means she does not, in fact, exist. The other way in which one can think of her existing is as a mother. Right. And where the other directions in which a love goes in a marriage is perhaps your husband or your partner and then the children. And the, so this is also a way of proving right, that there is no other existence mm-hmm. for this character mm-hmm. other than the love for the partner, because the children do not matter. They can be killed off. And 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 there is, there is no other competing love, which which is again, is beyond the pale, right for for society at large and and, and for the, uh, for the broader, public in the
2: in the play. Very 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 interesting, uh, your comments. Is Medea just her eros uh, for Jason? Mm. Well, I think that this is the intensity of a Greek tragedy. The intensity of a Greek tragedy is that sometimes there are these shifts in action where everything is played with one card, so to speak. Let let, let me uh, explain. You say, is Medea just a woman in love? This is what Jason tells her. This is Jason's lack of recognition, failed recognition of her uh, that makes him say, You women, you women, if the bad works, everything else works. Uh, this is Jason. Why is this a misrecognition? It is a misrecognition because actually, Medea, out of that love, on account of that love, has saved Jason, has even made Jason into a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason had to conquer the Golden Fleece. This is part of a very long mythological narrative, but he didn't do it. He didn't perform. He is a very, very uh, sort of poor kind of hero. He succeeds only because media helps him. Mm. media for him betrays her homeland abandons her father uh, she cuts her own brother in pieces and throws the the, the pieces of the child in uh, to the the, the father who, who runs after her so he will have to stop and pick up the, him, the, <laughs> the, right. the limbs yeah. of the boy so she has done everything for him. So you could say that everything was done for him, but you could also say that so much has been done. So Medea is a witch, she is a princess, she she has a divine pedigree, she is not a tiny, you know, little woman just uh, just taken by love, and she loves the children too. She loves those children. But Jason wants to appropriate the children. Jason wants to take away the children from her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the extreme way of negotiating this kind of dilemmas that are tragic, what she does is all or nothing. Okay, if the children are the cause for your abandoning me, then... Here are the children, mm-hmm. good for you. And Seneca, in his own version of the play, will say, "She, uh, Jason, shows the place for the wound. Mm. So the wound are the children, mm-hmm. and she was."
1: Mm. St- maybe we could turn to talking a little bit about the role of monogamy and marriage in jealousy um, yes. and models of uh, open relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, Are those ways to avoid jealousy um, via your reading? Have you found, what what have you found in regards to that? I'm thinking of particular of um, you writing of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre and that that Beauvoir said she wasn't a jealous woman and they had an open relationship. Um, But it doesn't seem as if they were able to avoid jealousy necessarily.
2: Yes, this is the big question that concerns us, that has been concerning us, uh, us in um, sort of after 68 Western societies. in which transformations of mores have been paramount, have been huge. I mean, um, we have changed beyond recognition in in Europe and in this country in terms of sexual practices and norms and sense of uh, rules and, reg- and regulations. So this is the big, big question uh, for us. Um, to reply, uh, so sort of to cut to the chase of your question, Is jealousy uh, something that only occurs in the context of monogamy? I would say no. I would say that there is something so intrinsically connected to the erotic experience as desire of the other person's desire in singularity and reciprocity that this happens even in ephemeral encounters. Sure, Um, yeah. Would or you a cr- agree? Yeah, Would a crush
0: you- that you have a crush on somebody and they they notice somebody else and that destroys you because you want their gaze and attention on you.
2: Even if yeah. it is an event, a, right. even if small, it is something that thing. happens in a bar, yeah. even if it's in a, dance a party, club. Yeah. even <laughs> if it is in a situation in which you know that this is not the beginning of a relationship, but the, the moment, the instant, that sort of magic uh, coming together, of, you know, in all sorts of psychoanalysts or philosophers, language, the, the flame, the, the, the sudden encounter, uh, the epiphany, even in, in that instant there might be, and I think that most of the time there is the sense that that magic moment even if it's very short, requires that desire of the other person's desire. Now, in monogamy, what we do uh, if we accept a monogamous relationship is that we commit ourselves to this desire for the other person's desire on a long time. Mm -hmm. And here all the complications arise, of course, because it's not easy, because, uh, you know, Sex happens, eros happens, and we are at the mercy of the floating of what Hobbes called indefinite desires. I mean, a desire that's just you know moves. Remember the wings always. So there, are. Um, the challenge is how we negotiate our relationship to fidelity and to uh, the other person's fidelity. I uh, tend to be rather um, straightforward about uh, these questions. I do think that um, love and desire are always a matter of experience of pleasure and pain. Pleasure is simple and easy to understand, pain. Uh, can be simply the inevitable unintended consequence of of pleasure. In other words, the pleasure of a person can be the the pain of someone else. And so um, I think that beyond um, religious injunction or a uh, morality which is imperative, we could have a sort of erotic ethic of of fidelity and handling of jealousy based precisely on pleasure and pain. Do I accept the idea that a person I love um, might suffer if they knew of something that I take the liberty to do? What if my pleasure, big pleasure, short pleasure, long pleasure, complicated pleasure that I authorize myself to take, what if it produced pain in someone I love? Mm. I think that that is a question. Mm. Yeah, that
0: makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing that's interesting to me is the way in which jealousy is a particular kind of affect that culture invests a lot of energy in containing. And it also distributes it in very, uh, or distributes our access to it or our knowledge of it in very gendered ways, right? There's a a strong association of jealousy as an affect with the abject feminine, right? That it's, I mean, a (laughs) Medea is only one example of many. I mean, you could look at any kind of movie of the week on Lifetime and it's a similar kind of story. Um, That doesn't obviously mean that only women experience jealousy.
1: Because there's also the murderous man, right, the exactly. jealous man. right? right. right. Which, which, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. If you want to talk about icons, uh, You for a Medea, you have Othello too.
0: Right, exactly. Right. So um, I, am, I am interested, though, in the way in which both sociocultural contexts like Kate was talking about, monogamy, fidelity, I think in some ways heterosexuality versus homosexuality, mm-hmm. they get concretized notions of jealousy. But it... In every event, it's something that we seem to be invited to contain because it has this—much like Eros, it has these dangerous tendencies in it, right? Potentially antisocial, violent. But I'm wondering if there's a way that we can reorient or that you might suggest we reorient our approach to jealousy as just like, ah, I am in pain because the other person doesn't desire me or I'm not seeing uh, my desire reflected in the other. Um, is there a way that we can have a more ethical or perhaps a reparative approach to jealousy?
2: The, re- the reply for me is a resounding yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know, this the, the book has been for me the attempt of somehow articulating that, yes, mm. in a historical approach and also polyphonic approach, mm. because the voice of poets uh, uh, is there, but also the voice of psychoanalyst and the voice of philosopher uh, is there. And absolutely, yes, there is absolutely no need to think about amorous jealousy in terms of pathology in terms of a medicalization of the self Mm -hmm. in terms of self-assurance and security Uh, and I think that the worst of the worst is this prevailing I mean look on on, on, if you do a Google uh, search uh, on jealousy it's all about healing and talking yourself out of it, Mm. uh, finding a way of condemning it, blame blame, 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 blame. So there is no need for all this and the worst, the worst premise of all uh, of of this negativity is uh, the fact that jealousy happens to the jealous person. The jealousy is an effect that uh, somehow is generated by spontaneous combustion in the history, the childhood, or the relationship to the world or to the self of the person who is jealous. And suddenly we forget... The fact that infidelity does exist, that desire is indefinite and has wings, etc. That stuff happens and we live in societies in which precisely uh, divorce is all over the place and polyamorous experiences are all over the place mm-hmm. and in which we have a sort of constant uh, constant um, justification of precisely plurality and multiplicity. Experiences of sex and desire. So, jealousy is simply a response to this happening. Jealousy is an event. Most of the time it strikes you. It's not that it's a vice that you are naturally jealous. Sometimes you are, you know, just taken aback and completely, completely shocked. Mm -hmm. And then you can be traumatically, you know, (laughs) hypersensitive after, but give me a break. (laughs) You didn't look for it in the first place. And, you know, it happens because something happens in your life. Something happens in your life because your beloved really is interested in someone else. Because your beloved is really having an affair. Because your beloved behaves in such a way that makes you think that he would like to have an affair. Mm. All this is the sort of the stuff of our erotic lives. And my way of approaching this is simply saying: Let's be honest. Let's be humble. Let's be courageous, so, you know, um, honestly, uh, humility and courage, it, it is what it takes to say, yes, in certain situations, because I value so much a person and that person's love, and this is so important for me, of course, if it is threatened, I am completely annihilated. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of this dramatic language, because this dramatic language doesn't occur only in opera or in Greek tragedy. Uh, You know, let's read Freud, one of the most intelligent, as always, interpreters of our being human beings in the world. Mm. Freud says, there are different kinds of, uh, of jealousy. Number one, normal jealousy. If you love someone, The loss or the fear to lose the love of your beloved, and your beloved simply gives you pain. It makes you suffer. It's a loss.
0: Jealousy would be an affirmation that you are, in fact, in love because you could not— be jealous if there was not some kind of... So maybe that's one route towards a more positive recuperation of the it's a,
2: It's a, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I like your idea of uh, the healing aspect of jealousy. I think that there is a, in the honesty, in the honesty of admitting, of facing up to one's jealousy as opposed to talking yourself out of it and blaming yourself, there is a potential really for feeling better. Um, and even more than that, if we are honest, okay, if we are honest about our erotic experience, uh, say that we feel precisely a pain, a displeasure because the other person is showing erotic interest. I'm not talking about friendship or professional relations, but really erotic sexual interest for someone else. And There is an affair, there is no affair, there is another story that begins or not, but even the interest for it. Let's say that we talk about it, and it takes courage, humility, because Mm. no one likes uh, to admit to it. This is why it is an unconfessable emotion, And, and honesty. We bring ourselves to speak about it. Well, we can be welcomed with accusations of being insecure, of being uh, paranoid, of inventing, etc. But this can also be a way of testing precisely the... Honesty on the other side of the person is the other person a jason? Is the other person a cad? Is the other person someone who is going to put the blame on you but, and completely erase what he? I'm talking about masculine, just by chance. <laughs> what he has been doing. Um,
1: but what if the other person says, you know, you're right. I do desire X, and I would like to sleep with them. Is that okay?
2: Well, then it's your decision. It's your decision. uh, (laughs) You asked me a difficult question. I mean, if I talk about my book, (laughs) 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 my book metaphorically and this one, I would say then at least (laughs) the coast is clear, so to speak, or let's say the conversation, if we want to talk about it, or or the, the tears or the murmuring or whatever happens, is about what is really going on. I believe very strongly, personally, uh, in the contractual uh, nature of our erotic amorous lives. We agree, Mm. as adults, we agree what to do. If, in a couple, people agree about not being sexually faithful, as Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre did, Uh, And if they can keep the agreement, and if the agreement doesn't make both or one of the partners suffer too much, why not? Absolutely respectful of polyamorous experiences, Mm -hmm. of uh, all sorts of uh, of experiments, but I would say as long as we are clear and honest on the fact that there isn't someone who suffers in silence somehow intimidated blackmailed. If you suffer, uh, go and cure yourself. It's all in your head. You are not capable of uh, letting me be free. That is cruelty. And that is the kind of cruelty that happened very much in the 70s. I speak about Louis Althusser and precisely also (laughs) The, what transpires as the complexity of the relationship between sartre Beauvoir. sartre Beauvoir's uh, couple, open couple, was a paradigm. A lot of people have tried to emulate them. It's not that they just did it in Paris in, in some <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. small flat uh, near Saint-Germain-des-Prés. It was really a, a, an incredible phenomenon of somehow modelization, so to speak, of... Um, what uh, love uh, should be. And a lot of cruelty, a lot of cruelty went on and a lot of hypocrisy went on. Mm -hmm. So I
0: think that's actually a great way to end this, to kind of think about jealousy as something that can be productive and a route to honesty and more knowledge of the other and knowledge of your own relationship rather than a canker that kind of rots you both from the inside. Mm -hmm. So we've been speaking with Julia Sisa, author of Jealousy, a Forbidden Passion. been listening to the larb radio hour subscribe to our podcast in itunes soundcloud or stitcher if you like the show leave us a comment and tell us what you think the larb radio hours executive producers are eric newman medea ocher and kate wolf our engineer is lyra smith our researcher is chloe chap production assistance is provided by william broaden eleanor duke and jake levins our interns samson amore natasha boyd and joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.